All right. <laughs> it's a miracle and I did it. <laughs> okay, I wasn't even trying that. Okay, so we're going to continue then uh, in our series in John. And as you know, I've been away for a few weeks. And um, the last time we, we were uh, looking at chapter 8, this week we're starting in chapter 9. And uh, chapter 9 sort of flows on from what we read in chapter 8. So I just need to backtrack a little bit as we uh, come into chapter 9. You remember in chapter 8, the, the rulers of the Jews were absolutely obsessed with taking Jesus out. They really wanted to get rid of him. Uh, there were many full-on attacks uh, which didn't work, were not productive as far as they were concerned. And so then they tried that subtle way of bringing in that woman that was caught in adultery and seeing if they could uh, uh, corner Jesus and uh, set him up in a trap. But that backfired as well. And uh, so then they came out and, and tried to undermine the credentials of Jesus. He was making many claims, but did he have the right to make these claims? That's what they were asking. And Jesus by this stage was um, really needing to confront them very directly and uh, say a couple of straight things to them. And uh, the first thing that he said to them is, if you continue in this way, you will die in your sin which is in unbelief, and, and that would be terrible. To die without a saviour is the worst thing imaginable. And um, yet they were sort of just bent on absolutely cutting him out altogether. And then he, secondly, he said uh, uh, that they were, that, that, that he, he basically was doing these things in alignment with his father. He had come to work with his father and they also were working with their father who is the devil. So he's very direct and, and very confrontational in what he said. And then they, they said, no, Abraham is our father. And he said, well, if Abraham was your father, you would believe in me because Abraham believed in me. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad and put his trust in Jesus and was made righteous by trusting in Jesus. He was justified uh, for trusting in Jesus. And the second thing that Jesus said about that is that before Abraham was, I am. Um, in other words, he was making a real strong claim to deity once again. He was basically claiming that he's eternal. He's before Abraham was, I am. I am without beginning. I'm the God who was and is and is to come. And he used that divine term, the I am, the great I am. So at that stage, um, they, they went looking for stones to stone him. Some commentators say that there was building renovations that were going on at that time. And uh, they went to the building site to get some stones to stone him. And then the Bible says this, that Jesus passing through the midst of them uh, passed on and, and went on. So that's where we pick it up this morning. As Jesus passed on, Okay, going away from them, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night comes and the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, 
He spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. A wonderful miracle. In fact, this is the sixth of the seven signs that John uses in his gospel. You remember I said that he builds the first half of his gospel around seven miracles that he chose and he calls them not miracles but signs because although they were miraculous, there was a message in them and it was all about his work of salvation. So what we're looking at in this beautiful account of this man being healed of blindness is a wonderful message of our salvation, wonderful uh, insights to the, the whole work of salvation. And we're going to look at that. But also as we look at it, we'll see that there were other characters around uh, that responded to this healing or to this man in different ways. There are four different groups and we're going to look at those as well and try to just tie it all in together. So first of all, to the disciples, they were the first ones that commented. You know, Jesus was basically running for his life, remember? He was passing through, getting out of the way because his time hadn't come to be killed. And, and as they were going on their way, they saw this man that was born blind and the disciples asked the question, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? So to the disciples, he was just a case for theological curiosity and speculation. They wanted to have a discussion around him. And, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of where many Christians are at today. If you, if you, if you go on uh, social media at all, you find that a lot of Christians take a lot of time up debating and arguing with each other about doctrine, which is not a good look, I don't think, for the world. But um, that's what the disciples were doing. They wanted to get a, a, a theological discussion going about this man. Whose fault was it? Was it his fault or was it his parents' fault? They showed no interest whatsoever in helping him, only in discussing the cause for his condition. Who sinned? Now, in Jewish theology, only sinful people suffer. Now, we see this in the, in the story of Job. You remember Job was a good man, a righteous man. There was nobody like him, in fact, in the whole world. He was a very upright man, and yet he suffered tremendously. And all his so-called friends and comforters came round, and they just heaped condemnation on him. Their, their theology was this, only wicked people suffer. Innocent people do not suffer. So therefore, you must have done something wrong. There's a cause for your sickness. You're hiding something, and sin is at the cause of it. That's where these disciples were. They're, someone's responsible for this suffering. It's either him or his parents. Now, by the way, going back to Job, if you've read that whole story, you remember that at the end of the story, when God appears, he uh, really rebukes Eliphaz and his friends for that theology. So anyone that holds to that theology, that, that people who suffer, they either have got sin in their life or they haven't got enough faith or something like that, heaping condemnation on them, God says, actually, he said, I was angry with them. I was angry with them for, for doing that to Job and saying that and coming up with that theology because it's just not true. But that's what these disciples were arguing about. Whose fault is it? Is it the man's fault? Now you might say, well, how can it be the man's fault? Because he was born blind. 
But, you know, uh, some people say, well, you know, uh, people actually sin in the womb. Well, if you've been a mother and you've received a hefty kick <laughs> during the time of pregnancy, you might have some sympathy for that, that point of view. But uh, some people in the Jewish world actually say that souls do not begin at birth. They, they, they're pre-existent, living in eternity. They could have sinned before they came into this world. And then some even believe in reincarnation. They sinned in a previous life. And so therefore they're suffering for their, 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 their actions in the previous life, in this life. Some people believe that in, in the Jewish world I'm talking about. So there are lots of these theories and doctrines that were circulating at the time. Now, of course, we know about um, the, 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 the teaching that sometimes people suffer because of their parents' sin or their, their grandparents or their great-grandparents. You know, uh, in the law where it says, I will visit the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. This is what they were trying to get at. Whose fault is it? Who can we blame that this man was born blind? There's got to be a cause. Jesus cut right across that. Neither this man nor his parents. So he just wiped that theology out altogether in one sentence. No one that you're saying is to blame directly for this man's uh, sin, uh, suffering, sorry. And in fact, he directed the question away from the why to what can God do in this situation? Isn't that where we should be? Rather than arguing about, you know, trying to point the blame and point the finger and, and so on. What can we do? What can God do? Let's make room for God to move in this situation rather than speculating, debating and arguing. Let's talk about what can God do. Our focus should not be on the Tower of Siloam, but on the Pool of Siloam. What do I mean by that? Well, it's interesting that Jesus sent this man to the Pool of Siloam. And uh, the word Siloam actually means sent. Okay, that's, that's the meaning of the word. But some of you may remember that um, in Luke chapter 13, somebody asked Jesus about some Galileans that Herod uh, killed because I think they got on his nerves. And uh, he killed them in a very bloody sort of way. And they said, well, you know, were they more guilty than other Galileans? You know, did they get what was coming for, for them, for, uh, to them? That's what they were asking. Did they get what they deserved? And Jesus said they were not any more guilty than other Galileans. That's not the way it works. And then he mentions this tower of Siloam. There was a tower that fell down uh, and killed about 18 people. And so he says they were not any more guilty or sinful than others living in that area of Siloam at the time. That's not the way it worked. You know, it's quite amazing that a lot of Christians believe in karma. You know, that you get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. God's going to catch up with them. God's going to get them. As a lot of Christians have that theology. If you've got that theology, I'd have to say you're in the wrong religion. You need to be a Hindu or a Buddhist, but not a Christian, because that is not Christian theology. God is not out to get people. You know, God got even at the cross. God gave what we deserve to Jesus at the cross. So this is the day of grace this is the day of salvation. It's amazing how many Christians, when, when there's a natural disaster, they jump on board straight away. See, see, this is the judgment of God. God is beginning to judge the world. Well, often I say, well, he's got the wrong people because there are more wicked people than those that suffered. 
Don't you agree? In that tsunami, for example, a lot of people got, got wiped out. Just ordinary people got wiped out in the hundreds of thousands. And uh, wicked sinners, you know, that, that are kind of like up the top there, you would say, have gone unscathed. So it doesn't work that way. God is not into karma. God got even at the cross. God is not into giving people what they deserve. He's into giving them grace what they don't deserve. That's the goodness of God. And that's the message that Jesus was trying to convey. He said, I've, I've not come to condemn the world. I've not come looking for the guilty. I've come to die for the guilty. I've come to take their blame upon me and to go to the cross. In fact, the Bible says this, that God is now reconciled to the world. You know that? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is not angry with people. God loves people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how much he loves the world. God is not angry with people. Some people think that God's anger is just about to boil over and, and look, there is a day of judgment coming. I understand that, but this is not it. We're living in the day of grace. Now is the day of salvation. Now we're reaching out to people like Jesus was here, reaching out, seeing what can God do for people, to help people, to save people, to bring them to himself. That's the day of salvation. And that's what Jesus was portraying in this situation. In fact, the Bible says this, that God has already reconciled the world to himself. His anger was totally uh, diffused, can I say that, at the cross, totally extinguished there. God has got no more anger. All his God is love. Now the message is be reconciled to God. God is reconciled to you. God is reconciled to the whole world. You look at, you know, sometimes I go to these countries where, where um, you know, there's predominantly other religions and I used to walk around thinking, look at all these Muslims. They're all, you know, God's angry with them. God's not angry with them actually. God loves them. God loves them. God's reconciled to them. God's anger was poured out of the cross. All he's asking now is that they be reconciled to him through believing in Jesus and accepting the salvation that he's giving to everyone in the world. So the disciples really, uh, they, 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 they got a real discipleship lesson on that day if they took it in and, and uh, of course they did. Okay, so we go on. But what we want to look at is that this whole thing of Jesus sending this man to the pool of Siloam and, and uh, him getting healed, it was a sign, another sign, the sixth of seven signs. And uh, first of all, we see that we are to go to the one who was sent. You know, actually, it says, I think, 40 times that Jesus was sent by the Father. He was sent. He, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, the law was given by Moses, but grace came. Jesus was sent. He came into this world to save us. That's why Jesus sent this man to the, 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 um, the well that was called sent, the pool that was called sent. Beautiful, isn't it, for salvation, to the one who was sent. And, and also it's interesting that um, there's no miracle of healing blindness in the Old Testament. And this is the only instance of a man that was born blind being healed, the only instance in, in, in the Bible. So what is it a picture of? It's a picture of original sin. We were born in sin. We were born, Adam's sin was passed on to us. We inherited us. We inherited it, amen? As David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. That's how we came into this world, as sinners. 
We didn't sin to become sinners. We were born sinners and that's why we sin. As it says in uh, Ephesians, we were by nature the children of wrath. We were born with a sinful nature that was passed on to us by Adam. Getting back to Job again, he asked the question, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? We were all born in sin, just like this man was born blind. And, and, and uh, because he was blind, he was unable to see the Saviour when he approached him. He was there. He didn't know Jesus was coming. He couldn't see him. So Jesus was the one that took the initiative. And that's how it is in salvation. God doesn't just uh, sit there waiting for people to come to him. He comes to them. He's the good shepherd that goes looking for the sheep and, and, and draws them to himself and brings them to himself. So clearly, this whole thing was a work of God. It's the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind, says the psalmist. And, and the, this scripture is speaking of the Messiah when he would come. 600 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah 35 and verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Beautiful picture of that. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's, he's, he's been sent into a world by a loving father to a, uh, you know, a human race that is blind in their sins. And he's come to reach out to them, to give them sight. He's the light of the world. Interesting also that he used dust uh, to, to make that, that, that uh, you know, clay to put over his eyes. And the dust was used in creation. You remember that? God took the dust of the earth and created the man. Well, here's the recreation, a picture of the recreation. Jesus has come to recreate us in the image of God. And the method, method of healing may have seemed foolish. I mean, it was, it's just short of spitting in his eye. <laughs> he didn't actually spit in his eye, he spat on... On, on, the, on the ground and made the clay and then put that on his eye and you know, then told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. That, that, that seemed foolish. Why don't you just pray for me? Why don't you just lay hands on me? And that, again, is a picture of the fact that the incredible thing about salvation is that God has chosen a very foolish message. It was foolish to the Greeks. It was, it was a stumbling block, actually, to the, the Jews. This is the amazing thing, that God took a message that was offensive, that's what that word stumbling block means, to the Jews. They were looking for this mighty king, this Messiah who would step out of heaven and deliver them and, and uh, set up his kingdom. But Jesus came in humility as a baby. He lived on the earth in obscurity for 30 years. Then he went to the cross and took our sin and became a curse. Cursed is anyone that hangs on the cross. And then the Jews were asked to believe in that. What a foolish thing that is. And yet many, many did. That's, the, that's because it's a work of salvation, a work of God. And to the, to the Greeks, it seemed foolishness. It, there was nothing you know, uh, clever about this message. There was nothing sophisticated. There was nothing deep about it. You want us to believe that a man on a cross is the hope of the world and the answer to the world's problem. It was foolishness to the, to the Greeks or the Gentiles, and yet multitudes believed in him. That's how we know this is a work of God. God takes the weak things, the despised things, and the small things, and he uses them to do his work. Hallelujah. You look at even a little church here and, and see, you, know, you think, how could God use us? But he does. He uses us individually. He uses you uh, individually, just to, in your own 
quiet way as you go on your business and you share a word or you share a loving act. That's God working in you and through you. You look at the, the work of missions that's going out from this church to, to the nations of the world. That's amazing. God takes the weak things and uses them for his glory. Amen. So the next thing then is the neighbours. We've looked at the disciples and they just wanted to speculate about him, but Jesus showed them that, um, you know, their theology was wrong. And we're not here to debate and argue about things. We're here to help people and to reach out to them with the love of God. Then the neighbours came on the scene. Therefore the neighbours and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, He's like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So to the neighbours, he was just he that sat and begged. Is this not he that sat and begged? They didn't even know his name. He sat there all this time and, you know, like, hasn't he got a name? Isn't this, what's his name? <laughs> you know, I don't know his name, but, you know, the guy that sat there and begged day after day, week after week, month after month, isn't that he? The transformation was so great that they did not know if it was him. It is him, said some. It's not, said others. It looks like him, said others. It's me, he said. I'm the one. That's, that's how God changes people so that others don't even know, is this the same person? Well, God does that. It's the work of God, amen? But though a familiar sight in the neighbourhood, it appears they didn't even know his name. What did he say, though? He said, a man called Jesus. They didn't know his name, but he knew that the one who healed him was called Jesus. He never even saw Jesus until later. Jesus told him what to do and probably somebody led him to the pool of Siloam and he washed after his eyes were anointed and he came seeing. And all he knew is that Jesus has done this to me. Isn't it like that as Christians? We don't know much about Jesus, but we just know what he's done for us. And, uh, you know, your theology and your understanding of the Bible in the beginning was zilch. But all you know is like the, this man said later on in the, in the passage, we won't look at it today, but next week, he said, all I know is that once I was blind, but now I see, and it's all because of Jesus. Amen. That's what we call a testimony. That's what we call a testimony. God gives us all a testimony. He changes our lives. And, and even if we don't know the Bible, we can say, all I know is that Jesus has saved me. I'm, I'm, I'm one of his children now. And then as we, as we get to know him more, as this man did, and we'll see that next week, as he meets up with him, there's a growing revelation of him. You know, as we, as we uh, begin to study the word of God and listen to the teaching of the word of God, we see that not only have we been forgiven, but we've actually been made righteous. God has put the righteousness of Jesus into our account, and that's how he's going to treat us from now on as one who is righteous. Why? Because we are righteous. We're the righteousness of God in Christ. 
and uh, you know the bible says also that we've been baptized into christ we're we're one with him we're joined to him we can we can't be separated from him his life is now our life we're experiencing his life we learn these things and we learn that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. We can't be, you know, thrown aside because of our failures or our weaknesses. We see God working more and more in our lives. We understand it more and more. We understand that we're now sons of God, not only just forgiven and, and sent away with a, you know, a clean bill of health, as it were, spiritually, but we've been brought into his family. We've been set around his table. He feeds us upon, the, you know, all the riches of Christ, the riches of his grace. And uh, we see also we've got an incredible future. We're destined to, to reign with Christ. And there's so much more that we learn. But, but in the beginning, we say, all I know is that, you know, he saved me. We can't an answer the, you know, the, the, the cults or, or the critics or anything like that. We, you know, they can tie us in knot, but they can't take away from what he's done for us. This man was blind, but now he sees. Amen. Amen. That's the same with you. You know that I don't, you know, I don't know all the answers to the Bible, but I know this. I was once blind, but now I see by the grace of God. Hallelujah. Okay, so the next one was that they brought him to the Pharisees because, well, the Pharisees should have an answer to what's going on here. Why? Because, well, the Pharisees said that this man, Jesus, don't trust in him. Now, all of a sudden, they've got this man who was born blind and this Jesus who they're talking about and talking against, he's the one that's opened his eyes. So they want an explanation. Should we listen to him or not? You said we shouldn't, but look what he's done. So they brought him formally, who was blind, to the Pharisees. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. So to the Pharisees, he was just the tool for their purposes. They wanted to find something from this man that they could bring against Jesus. I mean, here's a man, a mighty miracle. Nobody had ever been healed of blindness in Judaism. And certainly the, um, nobody that was born blind. Uh, instead of marveling and praising God and worshipping God, they're trying to find something from this man to use as evidence against Jesus. Can you believe that? The Pharisees have been telling the people that Jesus was a deceiver. Now what will they say? Their immediate response was that he had violated the Sabbath. When did this take place? Oh, it's today. Oh, well, today's the Sabbath. So therefore he's a sinner. Not only a sinner, he's a repeat offender. <laughs> Do you remember the other man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day? The man at uh, the pool? That's right. He's a repeat offender. Therefore, he was a sinner and the miracle was from the wrong source, even though they said, give glory to God. <laughs> the Sabbath was made for man. 
It was given as a blessing, not a curse. That's what religion can do. It can, it can turn a blessing into a curse. It can turn something that's meant for good into that which becomes a real burden to us. And it's interesting that there was a division among them, among the Pharisees. Maybe that's because Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees and, and some of them were silently believing in Jesus. Either Jesus is a sinner or their understanding of the Sabbath is wrong. One of the two. There was a division between those who accepted him and those who trusted him and those who did not. So this is what they were saying. How can a sinner do such things? Which is very sound reasoning because they weren't actually uh, reasoning from their traditional teaching, the, the teaching of the elders, but from what the scriptures say. This is what the scriptures say. The psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If this man was a sinner, why did God hear him and open this man's eyes? Um, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry, to the righteous. If this man is not a righteous man, why did God hear him? Here's another one. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. This thing is consistent through the scripture. So this is what these Pharisees were saying, but they were a small minority and eventually they got overruled by the, by the, by the larger group. So they asked the man, what do you say about him? And he said, he's a prophet. He's from God. He's come from God. He's come with the word of God to speak God's word to us. Now that's interesting because it's the same conclusion that the woman at the well came to when her eyes were open. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And the same conclusion that the multitude came to after they were fed through the miraculous feeding of the, you know, the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus was a prophet. People came to that conclusion because of the evidence that was before them. Now they couldn't get the man to discredit him, so they went to his parents like those in Acts chapter 7, verse 57. Who, who were they? That, that, that was after Stephen was stoned. It's quite incredible, you know. The Bible says that when Stephen was brought before the, the Pharisees, they saw his face like an angel. Can you just imagine that? They looked at him and said, there is something godly about this man. God is shining through him. His face was like an angel. And then he just expounded the scriptures in a way that they'd never heard before. And in the end, they, they, they were so angry with him. They gnashed at their teeth. They were angry. And the Bible says that Stephen, probably knowing what was going to happen, saw heaven opened and, and Jesus standing, not sitting this time, but standing at the right hand of God, standing as it were to receiving, knowing that he would be killed. And his face was radiant. And the Bible says they, they stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear the truth. It's like, I know what I believe. Don't confuse me with the truth. You know, that mentality some people have. They just don't want to know the truth. They want to stay where they are. And that's what these men were like. They, 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 they didn't believe the testimony. They didn't believe anything that was said so far. So they went to see his parents, the last group. Let's have a look. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him saying, is this your son 
who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So to the parents, their own son was a threat to their standing in the religious community. It's like now, now, now you, you know, when you were blind, you're okay, but now you're healed, you've created a problem for us. <laughs> because the, the Pharisees are on our backs and asking us, and, and we've got to be careful what we say, otherwise we're going to be put out. The Jewish leaders were clutching at straws now. Maybe the whole thing was a fraud. So they asked, him, asked them three questions. Number one, is this your son? Was he born blind? How was he healed? They said, number one, this is our son. Number two, yes, he was born blind. Number three, how he was healed, we don't know. <laughs> because that brings Jesus into the equation. You ask him, he's of age. Apparently when you were at the age of 13, you could, you could testify for yourself in, in, in a court like this. So they said, go and ask him, he's of age, ask him. If the parents were seen to be siding with Jesus, they could be excommunicated. This was serious because the excommunicated was cut off from all religious, economic and social life. So apparently there was a process with this thing called uh, excommunication. If you'd committed an offence that, that could be punished with excommunication, first of all, you were given 30 days, 30 days to think about what you, whether you want to change your story, okay? And in that 30 days, you could not enter the tabernacle, sorry, the, the temple or the, or the synagogue. You couldn't have any religious dealings. You could not trade, buy or sell with any fellow Jew. And, and you couldn't mix with any Jew either. You were, you were like a leper, okay? You were treated like a leper, totally isolated. So after 30 days, you were given the opportunity to relent. If you didn't do that, you were given another 30 days where you were this outcast again in all those areas of life. And then if still you hadn't relented, then you were under what was called the harem. Harem was uh, the ban. That's it, you were, you were out for good. It was a lifelong ban from all those areas of life. Can you just imagine that? That's why there was fear in these Jews. We have to be very careful. We see that uh, a few times in John's Gospel. For example, Nicodemus came to Jesus when? By night, under the cover of darkness. He, he believed in Jesus, but he didn't want to be seen to be believing in Jesus. In chapter 7, we saw uh, when Jesus went up to that feast, everyone was talking about him. Some said that they believed in him, others didn't. But nobody talked openly because of fear of the Jews, the Bible says. It was all in whispers, all, everybody looking over their shoulders, being careful about what they said, because if they were heard, they would be reported and they could come under this ban. And then we see it in chapter 12, verse 42. We haven't got there yet, but we see also that amongst the leaders, there were many that believed in Jesus, but they would not say so unless they were put out of the synagogue. 
Now, some of you have had dealings with cults and legalistic churches and so on, and this is a very real thing. Some people are, are put out of the, the cult, and if anyone speaks to them, they're also cut off, they're excommunicated. And, and it can have a real power over people. That's religion. Religion does that to people, not God. Persecution and ostracism from the religious community was promised even to the disciples. Jesus said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he's, he offers God's service. That's the thing, is that those that treat people like this think that this is what God wants them to do. This is how God wants them to treat other people. So sad. So we've seen how this man was to the disciples, to uh, the parents, to the Jews, and, and, and to the neighbours. But what about Jesus? To Jesus, he was someone who was in need of compassion. It's as simple as that. He was a man that needed to be healed. And, and Jesus, though he was fleeing for his life, he stopped in his tracks. He saw a man. Why did he stop? Because he only did those things the Father asked him to do. The Father obviously was drawing his attention, just like the Holy Spirit will lead us to people that he wants us to minister to. And we know, we know there's a compulsion in us that we've got to go and connect with that person, see that person. Amen. To the disciples, sorry, the disciples speculated or debated. Jesus was not interested in his past but in his future. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Everyone's got a past. Everyone's got a history. But Jesus said, I'm not interested in that. I'm not here to scrutinise that. I'm interested to talk to you about your future and how that can be blessed and, and uh, helped. Not how did he get this way, but what can we do for him? The neighbours were detached. They, they wanted to be separated from him. Some people are like that. They think that the church has got to hide away from the world and, because we're separate. You know, be, come out from among them, be separate. <laughs> but Jesus was in the world, even though he was not of the world, he was in the world as the light of the world. And when he left the world, he said, you are the light of the world. We're here to shine God's light and his love. Amen. The parents didn't want to get involved. The fear of man set a limit on how much they wanted to get involved. It outweighed their desire to give the glory to Jesus. How was this man healed? We can't say, ask him, because of fear. And the Jews wanted to use him for their purposes. Interesting that when you listen to people that have come out of cults, it's only when they come out they look back and see how they were used in that cult. The cult used them in many different ways, but never really ministered to them or bless them. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So let's just look at that as we finish on this last slide. He said, I must work. This is, this is what motivated Jesus. I must work. Unless there is an imperative, there will be little impact. You know, we, we're here to to, to serve God, to minister for God and to, to be a blessing. Not only that, I understand that, but there is something to do. Some, sometimes we can become very passive, even under grace. You know, people think, oh, don't, 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 don't put any pressure on people to do things because that's not grace, that's, that becomes legalism. No, it's not. Jesus said, I must work 
while it, while, while it's day. Paul says, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm here, I know why I'm here. And it is an epistle to the uh, Ephesians, he wrote, for this cause, for this cause I'm a prisoner. I'm here because there's a cause, there's a work, there's a mission, there's a, there's a calling for each of us. And, and Jesus had that imperative. He didn't just say, I must, but he said, I must work, not speculate, not debate, not isolate, not find fault, but I must work. I must work. I, you know, I'm not going to be distracted by these other things that can, uh, we can get caught up with. I must keep on the course, do what God has called me to do. I must work the works of him that sent me. Not just I must do something, you know, the, the placard that says Jesus is coming, look busy, <laughs> you know. Do something, just look busy. No, no. If you don't know what God wants you to do, you'll end up doing what others want you to do. What has God called you to do? I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The most glorious of all God's works is displayed in the saving of the lost, reaching out to this world with the good news of the gospel of salvation. And he said, I must work while it is day. Night that's death, our death or our departure from this world. But while we're in the world, we can do something. When we leave this world, we can't do that anymore. That time is gone. So let's work while it is day, because the night comes when no one can work. Amen? Amen. Jesus is so different to others. Jesus is here, came to minister to those in need, and we are now his body. We are his arms outstretched, we are his voice, we are his, his feet to take us where he wants us to go, to minister in his name. Let us work while it is day, because the night is coming when no one can work, amen? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you today for your precious word. We thank you for this uh, account we have in John 9 of the way that Jesus stopped in his tracks and was directed to minister healing to this blind man. Lord, I do pray that we as your body will continue to do the works that you have called us to do while it is day, to be led by your spirit, to be sensitive to the leading, the direction of the spirit, and to bring your compassion, your heart, your life, your light, your truth to this dying world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.